Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Of course, the obvious story right now is not unique to Amarillo. The COVID-19 coronavirus has caused upheaval all over the world. Things are changing rapidly, and all of us are having to make adjustments, including here at this podcast. So this is Chapter 3 in a temporary restructuring of the show. In each episode, I'm reaching out to members of the community, and I'm doing this over the phone, not in person, to hear what's happening. Before we start, though, a quick sponsor message. Amarillo is sponsored this week by SKP Creative, a full-service agency offering traditional and digital marketing strategies. One of its specialties is social media, and as a social media professional myself, let me assure you, this is a challenging time for communication. Everything's happening so fast, and getting your message out clearly and appropriately is critical. That's why a business like SKP Creative is so important. They develop data-driven communication strategies to connect with your audience and to share your story when it matters most. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more. SKP Creative. Make it happen. Okay, some housekeeping. This episode is being released on March 26th, but the interviews took place prior to that. So things may have changed by the time you listen. Here's the show. The first interview with Dr. Weiss was recorded on March 24th. Brian, B-R-I-N, Weiss, W-E-I-S. Uh, I'm an MD, uh, and uh, basically I'm the chief medical officer at Northwest Texas Hospital. Okay, Dr. Weiss, thank you for, uh, for being on the show. Could you tell me how Northwest is preparing right now for potential outbreak, uh, influx of patients, anything like that? Absolutely. So, so what we're doing is, is we are strictly following the guidelines that have been put out by the, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and also the World Health Organizations. I mean, I, as, as everyone's aware now, um, the biggest thing is social distancing and reducing any potential exposure in groups of individuals with this virus. Um, so what the hospital has done is, is uh, severely limited uh, access to the hospital by visitation or visitors. So at this point, we have only very limited access points for entry into the hospital. At each of those access points, we are screening individuals for any symptoms that we would be consistent with the COVID-19 virus. So that would be obviously fevers, uh, cough, respiratory symptoms, and now even GI symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So, so uh, And then we are about to take the step of really reducing that anyone who enters the hospital, including our employees, our medical staff, will also undergo similar screening processes every time they enter the hospital to, to perform a shift or to see patients. So, so that's really what we're doing is making sure that we are uh, uh, screening everybody so there's no infiltration of the virus uh, into the hospital um, and, and then also limiting any other uh, unnecessary traffic. Okay, can you tell me, you know, based on the preparations and, and I know the discussions that you and your team have had, can you tell me what you're expecting to happen within the next week or two as maybe more cases are discovered in Amarillo, as, as things begin to spread a little more than they have been now? Yeah, so Jason, I mean, as, as you are aware, around the country now, we're seeing areas like New York uh, showing multiple new positives every day. Um, you know, right now, testing and the return of testing results is still a limit, still limited in this area. So right now, for example, uh, we have about 20 patients in the hospital 
who uh, we suspect may have COVID based on their history or their symptoms. And, and, and those 20, we're still waiting for results on those 20 patients. So uh, I think we, we're all anticipating a better testing availability within the next few days or a week. Um, so I fully anticipate that out of those 20 we have in the hospital, that we will have some of those that will come back positive. I think as we increase testing capability and availability in, in Amarillo, we're going to have more positives. So I think we're going to follow suit with other parts of the country is, is we're going to see more positive appear as we, as we do more extensive testing. Um, so, so, and we're prepared for that. We, we certainly have prepared our hospital to accommodate those patients um, who need hospitalization or who may need even critical care. Um, but I do think a lot of those patients who are positive will also be able to um, have symptoms that are, that are mild enough that they'll be able to stay home and quarantine themselves at home. Right. That's, that's my next question is, what would be your recommendations to the public? I know the hospital's action deals with the people who are in the most critical condition, but for someone in the public who thinks, okay, maybe I have some symptoms, what are you recommending? Well, at, at this point, we're saying, uh, you know, please, uh, as much as possible, stay away from the hospitals themselves. Uh, certainly contacting their primary care doctor would be advised in terms of at least speaking with the physician as to the, the, the nature of their symptoms and to the degree of their symptoms. I mean, for most people, we still believe that this, this uh, virus will give them a mild course of symptoms. And, and, the, and really, the, what they need to do is, is if they have that, that the, the respiratory symptoms, the cough, the fever, and even maybe some of the GI symptoms, the best thing to do is stay home and keep themselves quarantined in some way from their other family members, too, uh, and, and ride it out. And only if the symptoms become severe enough that they uh, are concerned should they then come to the emergency room, and we are more than happy to take care of them at that point. Okay, and I know a lot of the discussion is about the capacity of hospitals, ICUs, to be able to handle an influx of critical cases. How is Northwest preparing to uh, to be able to manage that? I mean, do you have plans for additional beds or rooms, anything like that? Absolutely. Yes. So we're, we, we have a, I would say it's a multi-tiered plan right now. So uh, the most important thing is, is as we do get patients who test positive for COVID, we are cohorting those patients, meaning we are putting them all in kind of the same uh, ward or uh, clinical unit of the hospital so that so we can you know, care for them uh, you know, uh, identically in that sense, that our staff can wear uh, personal protective equipment and care for them in a, in a cohorted or a clinical ward. Obviously, as we get more patients in, uh, we have designated other wards that will then uh, pull in as, as dedicated COVID-19 wards. So, so in that sense, we, we have a process where as we get more and more patients, we can um, bring in or commandeer more resources in the hospital, including space, uh, ventilators, uh, things like that, personal protective equipment to accommodate uh, those numbers. So, yes, yeah, so I think we're prepared for whatever surge uh, is, might, might come our way. Okay, and the last question I have is related to that personal protective equipment. I know there have been shortages in a lot of different places. What's the current supply at Northwest, and do you feel comfortable with that? So, so uh, without giving exact numbers, uh, right now I think Northwest is in very good shape. We uh, when we first were going into this crisis, we obviously inventoried everything we had. I think at that point we felt that we were really in much better shape than a lot of other facilities. I mean, we continue to do daily inventory of our, our, our personal protective equipment. We're also using whatever uh, 
recommendations there are for reutilization of some of this equipment, particularly the masks. And there's one mask in particular called an N95, which the CDC has put out recommendations of how you might be able to use an N95 several times and, and keep yourself safe as long as it's, it's uh, put in an appropriate situation to dry out. Um, so we are making sure that we have, have taught our staff as to how to best utilize the PPE, make sure that they are utilizing it appropriately in any given situation so they are protected, but that we're not over-utilizing it. And, and then lastly, uh, we're working with our, our corporate structure uh, as well as our supply chain to constantly be looking at how we can obtain further PPE. And so we're finding sources too, whether it be through the government or through uh, private vendors, uh, where we are finding sources of PPE. So at this point, we are in good shape. We do not see any immediate shortages, and we feel that we can adequately protect our staff and our medical staff at any given time with the PPE they need to be able to take care of these patients. Dr. Weiss, can, can I ask you personally, do you feel uh, confident or hopeful right now about what's going to happen in the next few weeks? It's, it, it's tough to know. Uh, you know, I think uh, I always go back to Dr. Fauci, you know, who most of people have seen as the leader of the uh, NIH Allergy and Immunology. Dr. Fauci is a brilliant man. He has been through several of these kind of situations, including the HIV epidemic, um, you know, and Dr. Fauci still continues to say that, that we're only seeing the beginning of this crisis as far as he's concerned um, and that we must, you know, kind of flatten that curve he speaks about. We've got to stop the multiple simultaneous infections that would overwhelm our healthcare facilities. I, at this point, I, I support his recommendations of everyone needs to shelter in place as much as possible to avoid cross-contamination by not, you know, uh, getting into groups. So, it is tough to tell, but certainly if we look at New York right now, I think the numbers are quite concerning. I mean, they are seeing a rapid rise in cases. If you look at what they're anticipating as, as the need for hospitalization, you know, right now they're predicting they may be as much as 50% short of the hospital beds that they will need in the coming weeks to accommodate the, the folks that, that will need hospitalization. So, again, I, I, think, um, I think we've got to prepare for the worst. My hope personally, is that we don't see that and that we come out of this saying, well, boy, you know, we overreacted, but that was good. Um, but so it's, it's just hard to predict right now. Okay. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jason. Anytime. You bet. Hey, it's Jason with a quick interlude. The next two interviews, one with the Cofferinghams and the second with Manny De Los Santos, were both recorded on March 25th. My name is Ken Cochranham. I'm the president of Fiesta Foods. And I'm Jarrett Cochranham, and I'm the vice president of Fiesta Foods. Thanks, guys, for giving me some time on the show. Can you tell me right now what uh, Fiesta Foods is just experiencing in terms of its, its hours, its demand, the, the kinds of ways that you're accommodating customers right now? Our current hours, we're running from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m., um, it, for about the last two weeks, it has just been absolute chaos. Things started slowing down a little bit on Monday of this week, and I don't know if it's because guests are running out of money or if they're just as stocked as they can fully get. We feel that there's a second wave coming, but we don't know when. All of our teammates have just been incredible. There's teammates that are working upwards of 100 hours a week, ourselves included, to try to take care of the guests and their needs 
Um, here at the stores, we're, all of the employers are wearing gloves whenever we're out on the sales floor. We're disinfecting the keypads and the check stands probably every 15 to 30 minutes as uh, business permits. And uh, we're just trying to take care of business and take care of the guest. I know that you have multiple stores, um, not just in Amarillo, but elsewhere in the state. Are you seeing the same kind of activity across all of your stores? Yeah, we, uh, as you know, we have two locations here in Amarillo, and then we have another store in Pampa, which for those that don't know is an hour northeast of here. And kind of what we've seen, uh, the, the rural communities outside of Amarillo, uh, especially in Pampa, they're about two or three days behind the waves that we're feeling, both in the run-up as well as the run-down of those waves. What kinds of supply chain issues have you seen? I mean, I, I know that there's always, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks been shortages on supplies like toilet paper and disinfectant and stuff. I mean, what are you hearing in terms of the ability to continue getting those things? The, the biggest challenges that, that we've been facing are, A, getting the products that we're ordering. Uh, the, the staple items, the, the dried beans, rice, ramen noodles, uh, our suppliers being allocated from the manufacturers, and, and we're feeling that uh, from them as a result. Uh, paper goods, uh, we haven't seen toilet paper in a couple of days uh, on our trucks. We've been receiving uh, up to three trucks a day the, the last week or so. Uh, and one challenge that we're having on those is they're, they're not set, set scheduled deliveries like we're used to. Um, we're on call 24-7 that if the, if the truck is leaving the warehouse, uh, we'll meet it at the store to be unloaded uh, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So just trying to uh, accommodate the uh, transportation services so that they can continue rolling groceries to other stores as well. Can I ask what you have seen just in terms of the response from your customers not necessarily how they are buying, but just in in their attitudes, in uh, you know the way they interact with employees at the stores. Jason, we've seen a lot of gratitude from our guests coming in the store, thanking us for what we're doing. We're literally on the front line. We're you know we're handling money every day. We're handling product that they're handling. Uh, we've never washed our hands so much, even when we take our gloves off. My face has never itched so much <laughs> up until I put gloves on and started trying to not touch my face. And uh, the guests are being very gracious and very grateful for what we're doing. Okay, and the, the last question I have um, for each of you, if, if you'd each like to answer this, is what is something that's giving you hope right now? What is, if, if you have optimism about the current situation or how we'll come out of it, you know, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? Uh, for one, I mean, just the the, the community as a, as a whole, uh, with, with us and our team uh, here at the stores, uh, as well as with our suppliers, the, the difficult times tend to bring people together and bring out the best in individuals, and uh, we are without a doubt seeing that play out every day, and uh, just the... Uh, the community-mindedness and the banding together in tackling this crisis as a, as a group and as a team has uh, done, done a lot to instill hope in, in me personally. And speaking for myself, Jason, you know, we're, our, our family is believers, and we, we don't know why we're going through what we're going through right now, but we do know that God has a reason for it. Um, it's going to be a long time before not only 
the grocery industry recovers from what we're going through right now, but the country as a whole. We were on a conference call this morning with Affiliated Foods, and at this stage, it's predicted that, that it's going to be close to a year before you would be able to walk into a grocery store and see it at normal level like you were used to seeing it a month ago. But uh, it, it's, just our, it, it's just our faith that keeps us going and know that we're going to come out on the other side of this thing, wherever that other side may be. Okay, Jarrett and Ken, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Okay, Jason, thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, this is Manny De Los Santos, uh, lead pastor at Power Church here in Amarillo. Manny, I uh, I appreciate you giving me some time today. I wanted to ask about the response that your church has made uh, to what's going on right now. So tell me how you are still meeting the needs of of your community. Man, that's a big question. I'll tell you, we've we've really and um, reinvented our church in some as- aspects. Right now, you know, we've always had an online presence. I mean, we've had a we have a great online following, but now the uh, the challenge that we have to conquer now is staying engaged. And so, um, so to answer your question, we are online throughout the week, Monday through Friday. There's some aspect of uh, uh, digital connection between Power Church and the people that are that follow us on social media. Um, so whether it's a a morning devotional, a noonday devotional or an evening worship set with uh, some of our praise team that gather. Um, and we broadcast it live. Uh, we're reaching out continually more than we, more than we typically do because uh, we want to make sure that people have the opportunity to feel connected to the church. And that's, that's the strategy behind what we're doing is we're giving people an opportunity to, even though they can't congregate, they can still connect with the church and uh, um, through social media platforms. Was, uh, were Sunday's services, were, were those your first fully online services um, that, that you've begun broadcasting in the past few days? Yeah, so again, we, we've always streamed. And so our typical stream on a Sunday, you know, we'll have, you know, over a thousand people in, in our church throughout the weekend services but our typical stream will also be um, reach about a thousand views. Okay. Um, okay. So this Sunday, since it was a total, complete online experience, um, we actually saw over eight thousand online views. Wow. So um, yeah, and so you know the numbers are right. I think right now, what we see right now is there's eight thousand online views to just our Facebook platform now we also have a youtube platform and a uh another platform that's um church online and do you so have any we, idea about the just the, the church members response to it i mean have you heard from them about the experience of worshiping via an online platform like that yeah so obviously they'd rather be here to, together right so yeah. um they, they'd rather be in the in the church house with us but i believe the just the the excitement of being able to share what happens here, you know, you know, average Joe comes to our church. Um, he enjoys the experience. He enjoys the atmosphere, but 
now that he's at home with his family, he can he, and watching on a a laptop or his phone. Now he can be like, hey, I want my, you know, two thousand friends that follow me. I want them to be engaged with what I get to see every single week. And so, um, obviously, they would rather be here. But now I'm. We've taught our church that hey, you know, you're the light of the world. Do whatever you can do to to display and demonstrate the gospel to everyone, everywhere, every day. And so they're like, hey, this is an opportunity for me as a church goer to transition into being a church minister and share um, the, the the video feed that I'm getting at my house. So you know, you got to you got to make you got to make lemonade sometimes. And and so again, what they're doing is, hey, we'd rather be there, but they're engaged man we've had we had so much engagement on our social media platforms from this i mean the engagement is just astronomical tell um, me what so it's now like they're engaged good oh i'm sorry but tell me what it's like as a as a pastor to be preaching now to a video camera rather than an audience or maybe for your worship team you know to be playing um for that that sort of strange environment yeah. So again, it's, it's not, it's not typical. It's not a typical experience for me to get up and preach. For, so what I've done and, you know, it's going to sound crazy, but we have a, a area in our church where we, we sell merch. So we sell shirts, hats, all kinds of stuff. So what I did is I got the mannequins and put those in the pews, man. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So put they the weren't mannequins very responsive in the pews. though, were they? No, I was pretty, it was bad. But you know, I had I had some of our our band here too. So you know, our worship team was scattered throughout the sanctuary. So I mean, there was a little engagement. But I'll tell you, again, my primary focus was on the camera, right? And so um, it was awkward. It was unusual. But to me, the way I looked at it is, it was a sacrifice unto God to say, "Hey, you know what? I don't feel comfortable in this environment. I don't feel like you know I'm really connecting or reaching." But I know that this is what we're called to do, to, to preach the gospel. And sometimes, you know, in my head, I don't, in, my, in my eyes, I don't see anybody in the audience. But in my heart, I know that what's being declared is going to go into many different homes. And uh, so it was awkward, but I looked at it as a opportunity, uh, a sacrifice of opportunity. You know, uh, we were just going to sacrifice and feel strange, feel unusual. You know, the, the worship team was going to, you know, lead worship and be very um, enthusiastic and energetic to an empty church. Mm-hmm. But again, we, we look at it as we're, we're, we're not doing this as a performance for people. We're doing it for an audience of one. So I'm actually worshiping God. And whether people are in the audience or not, our focus is on, on God. Beyond the, the worship side of it, I know Power Church has always had a really strong presence in your community, just in, in terms of outreach and engagement, um, you know, outside the walls of the church. So tell me what you're doing now to serve maybe, you know, a, a lower economic community surrounding <clears throat> you. Yep. So what we've been doing, and, you know, we haven't even blasted this or anything, but what we've, we've been doing is some of our senior members, um, some of the members that we know have, you know, you know, five and six kids, um, we have packages, care packages that we are taking to their house and saying, hey, you know what, here you go. Um, 
you know, you could, if they need, if it's toilet paper or if it's toiletries, um, or if it's, you know, beans and rice or eggs, you know, we're, we're just doing an intentional service to people that we know of that are high risk for, uh, food insecurity. And so we're just being intentional and being strategic on taking them, um, groceries. Um, right now, in fact, last night we had a meeting and we talked about, you know, putting some, uh, bins outside of the church where there's, it's a community bin and that'll probably launch on Thursday, um, tomorrow where, you know, what we've been seeing around the city is, you know, people putting bins outside and, you know, bring one, take one type of idea, you know, whether it's a toilet paper rolls, the toilet paper in there, or if it's puzzles for kids to play or hand sanitizer, you know, bring something and take something is going to be the idea behind that. Um, so, you know, right now we see, you know, I have several people in our church that own restaurants and, um, some of them have had to close. Some of them have had to lay off some of their employees. And so what we're doing is, is the employees that have gotten laid off, you know, we're trying to figure out creative ways to say, Hey, what can we do as a church? So one of the ways that we're doing, uh, combating some stuff is we're taking them groceries to their home. Um, if they've gotten laid off or, you know, I, we, this is an un, uh, unusual time. So it's kind of fluid in everything that we do. All decisions that we've, that we've made have not been, uh, it's not something that we have to sit around and think and meet about. If there's a need, let's go address it. And if we addressed it wrong, then we'll readdress it another way the next time. And Manny, the last question I, I want to ask you is just more of a personal one. What's something that's giving you hope right now in the way that maybe the community has responded and, and anything you're seeing that's giving you optimism? As soon as this all happened, I mean, believe it or not, I got excited. So I, I've never, I've, I've looked at this as a huge opportunity for the church. So what's giving me hope is more and more people are understanding and realizing that, um, we have no, we really, as a world or even as Americans, we have no control over uh, certain things in our life. And the things that we used to think we controlled, we don't control. You know, we don't control a lot of things that we thought we controlled. And so we have to understand that, understanding that we don't have control, we have to actually admit somebody else has control. And I believe that God is in control. And I believe that many people across the country and across the world are realizing that God is in control, um, that I'm, I'm excited about, you know, although God did not send this virus, I believe God is able to use this virus as an opportunity to awaken people spiritually and say, hey, you know what, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need hope. And so uh, what gives me hope is to know that, one, God is in control. Uh, gives me hope is I see my church, my church members, um, assimilating and becoming now ministers to their own demographics. So, you know, they're speaking hope on their social media timelines. And, and, and I've commissioned them, hey, let's flood our timelines and our stories with, with words of encouragement and words of hope um, because we're hope dealers, you know. And so I'm telling them, hey, go out there. So I'm watching people that were kind of uh, introverts now become extroverts in, in terms of, hey, let me tell you about, the good news of the gospel. And so, man, I've not, we've not panicked. We've not stepped back. In fact, we've pushed the gas down and said, Hey, you know what? We're excited. We're, we're, we're believing God's going to 
create a, there's a revival, an awakening that's going to hit our community, our city, and our country through this. So, you know, I'm I'm very optimistic and very hopeful that um, God will get the glory out of this situation. Manny De Los Santos, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Okay, it's Jason again. The following interview was recorded on March 20th, but I think this local college student's story about getting back to the United States was a fascinating one, and I thought I'd share it with listeners. So here's Anna K. Reeves. My name is Anna K. Reeves. Um, I'm from Amarillo. I go to school in Austin at University of Texas at Austin, and I study English, Spanish, and international relations. Okay, Anna Kay, tell me what, uh, how this semester started for you, the spring of 2020. So this semester started with, I was in Austin with my friends as they were starting classes at UT. I was preparing to go to Buenos Aires, Argentina for my study abroad semester. Um, so I was here for about the first two weeks of the UT semester, just kind of relaxing, hanging out, spending time with them. And I went to Buenos Aires at the end of January. So we were doing an intensive language program in Buenos Aires where we were learning about, you know, culture and how to get around in the city. And coronavirus was being talked about a little bit. Um, I would listen to the BBC Global News Report every morning and it would always be mentioned. But it was very much on the back of my mind. Um, None of us thought we would have to go home because of it. Um, And classes at Universidad Torquato Tutela, which was my university there. Official classes for the semester didn't start until the beginning of March. And by the Thursday of the second week of class, uh, we knew we were going to have to go home. Okay. So I was lucky in that I had been there since the end of January for the intensive language program because I ended up getting a month extra that not everyone got, but it was just heartbreaking for the kids that had gotten there less than two weeks ago to find out four, four and a half months was going to be two and a half weeks. What was the process like actually coming home once that decision was made and you realized, okay, we've got to find flights, we've got to do all this kind of stuff? What, what happened at that point? So I initially got on the, we had booked through Cheapo Air, which, you know, in the middle of Flying home in a disaster was like, maybe Chivo Air wasn't the way to go, but (laughs) it ended up being fine. Um, They were very overwhelmed. Their resources were extremely limited as how many people were trying to call in and get help. And Argentina at the time was considering closing its borders. And so I knew that I was going to have to try to find a flight before that happened. And I was not able to connect with anyone ever. I don't know if it was because I was calling from out of the country or what, but my dad, luckily, after two hours of being on hold, got through to them, and then they were able to call me and get my confirmation. But it was definitely an extremely time-consuming and stressful process that I I feel lucky to even have gotten through, because I have a friend who's still down there right now. She hasn't been able to get her flight figured out yet. Wow. So, yeah. Um, And uh, we found out on the Thursday of the second week of school, and then I was on a plane by Monday morning. So it was a very quick turnaround. Okay, and I I know that weekend you had a little bit of run-in with the local police. Can you tell me what happened in that situation? I did, yes. On Sunday night, so the night before I was set to leave, um, 
I went out with probably six or seven other friends from class to do just sort of like a goodbye dinner. And after we'd eaten, we went to get some wine. And I was very distracted at this place because I was going back to the table, couldn't wait to tell my friends I'd just gotten two glasses for one. And then I kind of stopped short because there were police everywhere outside. And one of them was in a bulletproof vest with a camera, this big flashing kind of blinding light. And so I like very much, I put my story on hold and said, like, what's going on? And they kind of wandered around the police went inside this bar and upstairs and then came back out. And eventually they stopped and gathered around our table. So that by that time we were all being very quiet, but one of them who didn't have any identification, he was just in a black sweater. Um, he said to the table in general, in Spanish, he said, Están hablando inglés, which means, are you speaking English? And so nobody answered for a second. We just kind of were like, um, what is that question? And I just, I responded to him in Spanish and said, yes, we're speaking English, but we can speak Spanish as well. And at that point he was like, I mean, obviously he can hear that I have an accent and I'm not an Argentine native and could assume as much for the people at the table as well. So he said, I, I want to see your passports right now. I need to see when you arrived in this country. And so all of us were like, we hadn't been expecting to get stopped or anything and generally not good practice to carry your passport around in a big city like that. So nobody had their passports. And I, as an international relations and Spanish major, have been studying a lot about Latin America in general, but particularly Argentina, just as far as the civil rights issues that they've had in the past. And so I was very keenly aware that the federal police of Argentina are not someone that you take time to question. You do what they say. And I was like, so I answered him real quick. We don't, we don't have our passports, but um, all of us have phones with photos that show you the date and location that they were taken. And we can prove to you that we've been here long enough by showing you these pictures that say Buenos Aires and they show a date that is in compliance with the quarantine. Cause that was the general reason they were stopping people was just trying to check and see if they were in compliance with the quarantine laws. But at the time, they had just passed a new uh, penal code saying that anyone out of compliance, any tourist out of compliance with the 14-day quarantine could get 15 years in Argentine prison. Wow. So that was, and we all knew about that. It had been sent out from our university. And I was just really grateful that they ended up accepting that photo identification. So, I mean, that's not very official. But, um, yeah, it was just knowing civil rights abuses that have gone on in very recent times in Argentina. I very clearly said to the people around me, don't question. You know, there were a few girls that were saying, that doesn't seem necessary. Who are you guys with? You know, just sort of questions that Americans feel entitled to ask. But, like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Anything you're asking them is really just going to be something to gum up the works and give them another reason to not be kind to us because the tone was not. Yeah. So that was sort of my instruction. Just do what they say and don't ask questions. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad you got out of that um, potentially very difficult situation uh, intact. Tell me what was the, what, what you discovered once you actually got to the airport and got to the process of coming back to the United States. Did you have to go through anything 
um, in terms of, of testing, checking before you boarded or after you boarded? Well, somewhat worryingly, there was not much checking going on. Um, at I had a stopover in Santiago, Chile, and they you know, had a few people asking questions about, like, are you feeling sick? But that was the extent of the check there. And then in Toronto, I had a stopover there, and they were passing out pamphlets about symptoms of the coronavirus, but nobody, on the entirety of my 22-hour journey, nobody took my temperature or directly asked. And I also, the thing that worried me later, after having time to sort of settle back in and look at the protocol of what I should be doing was that whenever I left the airport, nobody said you need to go home and quarantine. Um, University of Texas recommended that, but going through international travel and all the hassle, it wasn't at the top of my mind thinking I need to make arrangements for this. So now that I know what I know, I'm thinking this really should have been more clearly advertised. And I, yeah, it was just very shocking to me now going back through and realizing the severity of the situation the United States is in, but there, there were less checks and protocol advertisements than there probably should have been. When did you arrive back in the United States? What day was that? It was Tuesday at, uh, I think, like 10.30 a.m. Okay, Tuesday, the 17th of March. Yes. And then you Saint were Patrick's able... St. Patrick's Day. Okay, then you were able to drive back to Amarillo? Is that how you got here? Yes. Yes. Well, my mom had to, because aside from, you know, just the logistics of figuring all this out, it was difficult on students that had to return because most of us had subleased our apartments. Um, So I don't currently have anywhere to, you know, in in Austin, I don't have anywhere to live because my apartment is subleased to July. My car is up here in Amarillo, so my mom drove down to Austin and then took me back to Amarillo. Which all of which probably shouldn't have happened as far as, you know, the movement of people that have just been abroad and there was so little guidelines and so many conflicting sources about what the best thing to do is that she just wanted to get me home. Okay. Tell me tell me your current situation now that you're home. I mean, you've been home a few days, so what's uh, what are you doing right now? Are you still like um, checking your temperature or monitoring things just from a yeah. health standpoint? Yes, I have a certain moment now, and I take my temperature a few times a day and have a little log of, you know, just keeping track of all of that. I'm checking in with the people in my program to see if their temperatures are normal and they have any symptoms. So far, we're good on all fronts and, you know, just around the house doing, I have my online classes and some books and paintings and just occupying myself that way. And so from what I understand is that you are still taking your online classes for the university in Buenos Aires yeah. to get your study abroad, you know, hours in, but you're doing it from your home in Amarillo. Yes, exactly. That's, that's an accurate all, description of, of what's happening. That is, that's exactly what's happening. I am using this application called Zoom to, it's like a FaceTime, academic FaceTime my teachers, who are all in Buenos Aires, still they will FaceTime basically the entire class and share their PowerPoints with us via Zoom. And so they sit in their houses from Buenos Aires and reach us in our homes all over. There are a lot of study abroad students that have had to return home. So, yeah, it's a direct connection. Buenos Aires, San Marino. 
Okay, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you, Anna Kay, is what is one thing that's giving you hope right now? Is, is there something about this, um, this situation now that, despite the uncertainty, is there anything that you can find that's, uh, that's maybe hopeful? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot that I think is pretty hopeful about this. Um, I've seen the way that Lytton in particular has set up um, Facebook, the panhandled COVID-19 home help. They're doing a great job with that, and I'm glad to see the community coming together to help each other that way. Um, I'm also thinking that, you know, people will realize that we can do without a lot. And after getting through all of this, there are so many things that we worry about having and not having that really don't make that much of a difference at the end of the day. So um, I think that it's going to be a time for people to learn how to sort of minimize and reduce and just be there for each other rather than worrying so much about all of the material things and just non-essentials, really. All right. Anna Kay Reeves, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the show. First, I want to say thanks to everyone who carved out time to do these interviews and to SKP Creative for sponsoring the episode. I also want to give a virtual high five to Angelina Marie for editing the show. She used to do that once a week. Now she's doing it twice a week. I'm also super grateful for the financial support that allows me to pay Angelina for her services. Hey Amarillo is made possible every week thanks to the patronage of my executive producers, Joshua Rafe, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Wes Reeves, Ryan Pennington, Neil Nossiman, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Patrick Burns, Chriselda, and Josh Wood. All of them support the show through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. If you want to support the podcast as we are changing things up and scrambling to stay relevant here, we would love that, but no pressure. I'd rather you give money to the food bank. But it's at patreon.com slash heyamarillo. This has been episode 132. My name is Jason Boyette. Stay safe. Stay home. Love your neighbor.